Well, you can imagine on the moment that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday and the cloaks are lining the road as he enters and the cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are being given, that the people who are there are expecting great things from him. They believe that they know who he is. They believe they know what he has come to do. They have a sense for what they believe his purpose is. It turns out, of course, as you know the story, that that purpose was exactly right. He had come to save his people. He had come to be that great son of David, but very differently than the people who were singing Hosanna on Palm Sunday thought. He would be saving them by going to the cross. They were looking for a different kind of leader, one that didn't enter into the weakness of suffering and death, but one who um, was valiant and triumphant as a political ruler that brought the people of Israel back into their due, back into a golden age like that of the original son of David, even King David himself. Almost all of us have various uh, beliefs and thoughts about um, who God is, who Jesus is, what he's come to do. Maybe even you have thoughts about what he's up to now in the midst of a season of pandemic, in the midst of a falling stock market, in the midst of job losses and concerns over health and life. Maybe you have questions about whether that son of David really does save. Maybe you have questions about God's own character and his purposes. Maybe you're beginning to find yourself to wonder, is God good? Is he wise? Is he really all-powerful? Is he someone that I can truly trust? In the passage that's before us today in our continuing study of the epistle of the Philippians written by the Apostle Paul, in here in chapter 2, we see he addresses those kinds of questions. Questions over who God is and who we are supposed to be. Who the Savior is and what He has called us to be. And how it is that we can become the people that He has called us to be. With those themes in mind, I want to look at the text with you, beginning in verse 14 of Philippians chapter 2 and reading to the end of the chapter. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and to honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we take a few minutes here in your precious word, as we lay ourselves before you and before the all-searching eye of your Holy Spirit, we would pray now that you would use this text of Scripture in the lives and the hearts of all of us who worship, who this day come to hear a much-needed word from you, who come to feed on the word of life and know that our very life depends upon hearing from you. Lord, we would ask that you would come now and that you would meet us. We ask that you would encourage and strengthen us in the faith. Come and clear all of the things that would vie for our attention right now off of the, the mind's eye and put before us the beautiful truths that are laid before us here in this word. And let the reality of our time be that we have not just met with each other, but we have indeed met with you. And you have shown us who Jesus is. And you have changed us. So come and meet us now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember as a young boy, uh, many times an adult, a very kind, well-meaning adult, uh, coming to me trying to strike up a conversation when I was six, seven, eight years old, saying something like, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? I really love that question, believe it or not. I had a number of fantastic answers that I gave over the course of my life to that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, one of those early answers to that question was, I want to be a storm chaser. <laughs> I had heard of these people who, who jumped in vans with video cameras and ran across the Midwest chasing F5 tornadoes and and getting close to them and having almost near-death experiences only to get a really awesome video out of it and have a really heart rush in the midst of the adrenaline. I wanted to be a storm chaser for a period of time. Um, I, I actually wanted to be a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger at one point or some elite military personnel. I thought it would be amazing to go into foreign countries and take out the terrorists and those who are a threat to our own country and, and in a sense be a hero. There was actually a time, believe it or not, some of you know this, that I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. 
I thought it would be amazing to be James Taylor or Jackson Brown and sing to thousands of people and, and, and to be able to, to croon my way, as it were, into their hearts. Well, as you can see, none of those things worked out for me. As I stand before you today preaching the gospel, I'm really grateful for that. Those dreams came and went over the course of my life. But that question for me as a young man and kind of coming up through high school was one that was filled with, well, expectation and, and romanticism. It wasn't until I got to college where the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, began to take a, take a turn because I began to ask a little bit of a different kind of question. One of the mentors that the Lord brought into my life was teaching me that what was more important was not what I wanted to be when I grew up, but what was more important about is who God wanted me to be when I grew up. Who had God created me to be? What had He called me to do? It was during that time where I decided that I wanted to be C.S. Lewis. I wanted to be a public intellectual of sorts, to defend the gospel, to write books, to speak, and of course to wear a tweed jacket and smoke a pipe as well. That all sounded wonderful to me. And of course, that's not exactly who I've turned out to be, as you can see. I'm no C.S. Lewis, but something of the abilities and aptitudes that the Lord had given me, I began to take inventory of. I began to listen to those who knew me well, and I began to pay attention to the deep desires that the Lord had implanted in my heart. I began to realize that He had called me into the work of ministry. That part of what the Lord was doing in my life was He was drawing me into His deep purposes for who He had made me to be and what He had called me to do. In short, the Christian life is really one that asks every day, God, what is it that you have made me to be, and what is it that you have called me to do? Do you know that's the question that is being asked of you every day when you open your eyes and your feet hit the floor? What is it that the Lord has made you to be? Who has he called you to be? What is he calling you to do? It's actually those questions that I believe sit on the top of our text today from Philippians chapter 2. And I want to consider those questions with you as we look primarily today at verses 14 through 18 and just make allusions to and reference to verses 19 through the end of the chapter. I want to look at this passage under those two questions. Who is it that the Lord has made us to be? And then... How is it that we can become the people that God has made us to be? And why is it important that we become the people that God has made us to be? Who is it that God has made us to be? How can we become the people that God has made us to be? And why is it important that we become the people that God has made us to be? Well, I want you to see in the text, beginning there in verse 15... That God has called us first to a certain type of character. He has called us to a certain type of character. Notice the language that he uses to describe our aspiration in life. That we are to be a people who are blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. That's who the Lord is Wanting us to be. This is a picture and a portrait of the character that God is calling us to be. He wants us to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Now, as you 
hear that description set forward by the Apostle Paul this morning, you may be saying to yourself, well, Nate, I thought that is exactly who I was. I thought that in Christ Jesus, I have been made a child of God. That I am one who now has the record of the Lord Jesus Christ charged to my account. Therefore, I have his righteousness, which means that I'm blameless. It means that I'm innocent before the Lord, that I am without spot. Now, if you think that when you're hearing the Apostle Paul tell us that we are to be in character, blameless and innocent children of God, then I just want to encourage you. I, I want to I say your instincts are good there. Because John in chapter 1 Verse 12 says, as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given them the right to be called children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, the same language is used that we see what kind of love that the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. Indeed, we are. That's exactly who we are then why is it that the Apostle Paul in this passage says, I want you to become, I want you to be, as if we're not already blameless and innocent children of God? Why is he calling us into a certain type of character when this has already been charged to our account by faith? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's an excellent question. And if you think of the context of this passage, if you've been paying attention to the argument of the Apostle Paul, I want you to look back At verse 13, actually verses 12 and 13 in the text, notice what it is that Paul has already said in the previous section. He has called us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, last week, Pastor Ben very helpfully taught us on the very... Uh, fact that in this passage of, of a command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God is not saying to us, work for your salvation. He's not saying anything about earning. He's not saying anything about merit. He's just saying, work out your salvation as if to say, you have this salvation now, put it to work. Grow into it. The, the salvation that is true of you, the identity that you've been given in Christ Jesus, take that identity and now begin to apply it in every area of your life and in every sphere of human existence. And do you see what the Apostle Paul is actually doing in the, in the succeeding verses here in verses 14 to 18? He's working out that salvation. He's saying to you, child of God, charged with the righteousness of Christ, blameless and innocent and without blemish, in your record and standing with God, now that that is who you are, grow into that. Become that. Let that more and more be who you are. Just a few weeks ago, actually three weeks ago now, I had the privilege of marrying a sweet couple in our congregation, Mark and Anna Lester. They had been completely displaced. Their wedding had been canceled because of the coronavirus, and we couldn't have a gathering here at the church, but we we gathered in a very small group, less than 10, 
uh, on the steps of the Capitol building in Nashville, which was where they were engaged. And there they exchanged their vows and became husband and wife with just the witnesses of Anna's parents uh, there on the scene. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment, despite all of the, the challenge of that circumstance and situation. Now, they're three weeks into their, to their marriage. They're, they're beginning to learn what it means to be a husband and a wife. They're beginning to know the blessings and the joy of marital love. They're beginning to take up the responsibilities and maybe even face the challenges of what it means to be married. If the Lord tarries and he allows them for the next 50 years to be a couple and they celebrate their golden anniversary at 50 years, do you know that they won't be more married than they are right now? They're in the status of marriage right now. They're not going to be more married in 50 years than they are three weeks into their marriage. And yet some of you are saying to yourself, but, but wait, Nate, they'll know more about marriage. Oh, yes, they will. They will grow into it. They will grow into it. They won't be more married. They have the status of marriage now, but they'll grow into what it means to be married through every year of their life. Do you see, Paul is saying the exact same thing, and that's true of who we are as children of God. We are to grow into being that which he has already made us to be. This is the character that God has called us to. This is who God wants us to be. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there. Look at the end of verse 15. He says, not only are you to be blameless and innocent children of God, but in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, here's what I want you to be about. I want you to be a people who shine as lights in the world. I want you to shine as lights in the world. Notice, this is not character that Paul is speaking of. This is calling. This is calling. Having the character of a blameless and innocent child of God without blemish leads you or fits you. It gives shape to a calling that shines like lights in the world. You stand out, in other words. In, in, the, in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, a, a world that's off course, a, a world that's darkened, a, a world that's depraved, in the midst of that world, you stand as a light. Very similar to the words that Jesus used, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 5 when he says about the church, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. That light is to be put on the lampstand so that everyone can see it. In fact, they're to see it so well that they would see your good works. That's the brightness emanating out from the character of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, the brightness of those good works, they would see them, and Jesus says they would glorify God who's in heaven. They would glorify God who is in heaven. Now that's part of the beauty of what Paul is describing here in this, this imagery of shineless lights in the world. Uh, that word lights that he uses here is actually uh, the word for star. And the word for world here is the, world, is the word cosmos. It's as, it's as if he's saying not just that you would be a, a lamp on a lampstand, but that you would be a star in the midst of a dark sky. That you would be as the north star that would shine brightly 
And so much so that when people saw it, it jumped out at them. It was a couple of nights ago, I, I stepped out to uh, simply take our, our dog out for the evening, and it was dark, and it was dark enough so that the lights around me were, were off, and I looked up to the sky, and, and immediately I saw the array of stars that are there. And you know where my eyes went? It didn't go to the darkness. Where did my eyes go? It went to the light. It went to the light. The, the light stood out against the darkness. Paul is saying that's the calling of a Christian that we are to live in the midst of. Notice, we don't separate ourselves out from. He's not calling us to separatism. He's calling us to missional living. He's calling us in the midst of the world to be different from the world, to be distinct from the world, to shine like light. So much so that the eyes of the people in the world would be drawn to the light. They would see it. They would see the good deeds. As Jesus said, and they would glorify God who is in heaven. Do you know one of the wonderful and, and, and beautiful hints that Paul gives us in this passage by using that language of luminary or using that language of star is to remind us that stars were not simply beautiful to look at. That tends to be how we moderns um, think about the stars. They're just fascinating to us. They're interesting to us. They're beautiful to us. But when the ancients looked at stars, what were stars? Well, they were direction-giving. In the first century, they were, they were navigational uh, means by which those who looked to the stars got their bearings, knew where they were, knew where to go. In fact, when we read at the opening of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and His growth uh, into the, the first few days and years of his life, that it was the wise men from the east who followed the star in order to find the Lord Jesus Christ. In a very similar way, the Apostle Paul is hinting at that reality that the people of the world look to the stars, the stars that are God's people, the blameless and innocent children of God, and we become, as it were, heavenly signposts. We become guides. Whereas they see what it is that the Lord has done in us and has the deeds of righteousness begin to shine through us, we point not to ourselves, but we point to Christ. We begin to show the way. We begin to reveal the truth. We begin to proclaim the life. This is who God wants us to be. This is really the foundational question that each of us are trying to ask as we come to the text today. Who is it that God wants us to be? Well, notice character-wise, He wants you to be a blameless, innocent child of God. And calling-wise, He wants you to shine as a bright star in the midst of a dark and perverse world. Now, I hope that as we kind of rest for just a minute in the midst of this message and we think to ourselves at the end of this point, point one, how is it that we can become those people? How is it that we could grow into being blameless and innocent children for real? How is it that we could not cower in fear or blend into the darkness, which we're so prone to do? How is it that we could stand out as lights, reflective of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, and be guides to point people unto Him? How can that happen? Well, that's actually our second point. How can we become who it is that God has made us to be? And notice that Paul gives us here two instructions. 
Two instructions. He gives us one that's negative and one that's positive. And I want to start with the negative. It's actually probably the words that jumped off the page for you when we first read this text. And you thought to yourself, oh no, he's going to tell me not to grumble and complain. <laughs> he's going to tell me I ought not be grumbling and disputing and arguing. And, and you're thinking to yourself, did he know there was going to be a coronavirus quarantine and that we would be at this point in the text uh, when he was working through the book of Philippians? And the answer, of course, is no. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I'm relying upon God's promises and his providence. He has us here for a reason. And in fact, as I was looking in my own life and even my own household a little bit yesterday, and I thought to myself, this is very appropriate for all of us right now. The first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us in terms of the kind of people we are to grow into and how to grow into those people is that we must do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now when you hear that, we are to do all things without grumbling and disputing, what do you think of? No, don't say your spouse, especially if they're sitting right beside you. Don't say your children or your brother or your sister. I hope you thought of Exodus 16. Exodus 16 is really the classic Old Testament passage on grumbling or complaining or disputing. And, and you remember it very well. It's actually quite, it's a quite surprising text. Because the people of Israel in Exodus 14, just two chapters previous, had just walked across dry land that was once the Red Sea. God had parted it. And he had rescued them out of Egypt and they walked across following Moses on dry land. And they got to the other side and as soon as that sea, which had been parted and which they made it through safely, as soon as they finished, that sea collapsed upon the Egyptian soldiers and chariots and horses that were chasing after them to destroy them. And Moses in Exodus 15 begins to sing that beautiful song of redemption. Miriam gets out her tambourine and goes to town. It's a rip-roaring victory song in Exodus chapter 15. It's a wonderful high moment of the redemption of God's people in the book of Exodus. And then, strangely, at the beginning of Exodus 16, verse 2, right at the opening of the chapter, you know what we read? The whole congregation grumbled. And you think to yourself, What? I mean, these people just saw the greatest redemption that has happened in human history, and they were a part of it. And we're now only days from that moment. And what are the people doing? They're grumbling and complaining. And we ask ourselves, why? Well, for the same reason you grumble and complain. For the same reason I grumble and complain. They got hungry. Their needs weren't being met. Their provisions were not as they wished them to be. If you go back, maybe later this afternoon, and look at Exodus 16, it's almost hilarious as you think about the people of Israel and their thought process at that moment. They say to themselves, oh, do you remember how great it was in Egypt? Do you remember how wonderful it was? Do you remember the meat pots we enjoyed? Oh, if God had just left us in Egypt and we had just died there rather than brought out here in the wilderness to starve. And you're thinking to yourself, are these people for real? Do they forget what it is that God just did for them? And the answer is yes. And they begin to be flooded with the bad news of the present circumstances and the feeling of deficit and want. And they immediately begin to murmur and complain under their breath. 
And in fact, they get a little louder. We're told that they attack Moses and Aaron and they begin to question God's goodness. They begin to question his wisdom. Do you know that's why these two words are here in Philippians chapter 2? The words grumble and disputing. That word disputing is sometimes translated questioning. It means that you begin to draw questions about who's in authority when bad circumstances happen around you. Not that we've seen anything like that during the coronavirus. I'm sure none of you have complained about your rulers, complained about your government officials. I'm sure none of you have complained about people who are in charge, not handling things the way that they should handle it. You know, he should do this for the economy, but, but he needs to protect lives. And I can't believe we're doing this rather than that. But I'm sure none of us have fallen into that. Yeah, right. All of us fall into this, don't we? This is the nature of grumbling and complaining is we begin to call into question those who are in charge and who are in authority and rather than expressing the submissive spirit that is true of a child of God and rather than expressing the trusting spirit believing that this God who has loved us so well is doing what's in our best interests rather than expressing a contented soul that, as Paul will say later in Philippians 4, learns contentment and can have much or have little because he's resting in God's provision and care, rather than being in that moment, we find ourselves snatched up into grumbling and disputing. And here's the deal. If we're grumbling and disputing, you know what we look like? We don't look like shining lights. We don't stand out. We look like what everybody else is saying and what everybody else is, is thinking and how everybody else is acting. We blend into the darkness rather than become lights. And so what Paul is saying here, if you're wanting to really grow into that blameless, innocent, child of God character and shine like light, you can't murmur in your spirit against God. You can't complain about the circumstances of which he puts him in, puts us in. Now, if you think about that, that is a beautiful example of the kind of character that Paul himself is displaying in this passage. I mean, when you look at verses uh, 17 and 18, Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's thinking about possible death. He's awaiting. Now get this. He's awaiting a trial. He's under house arrest. He's under quarantine. He's under a much worse quarantine than any of us right now. This is not just a shelter-in-place execution. This is, a, this is an order where he is attached to a Roman soldier and can't do anything on his own. He is under arrest. And as he's under arrest, he's ministering and serving the church at Philippi. And he says, listen, if I die in the midst of this, you know what I will be? Just a drink offering poured upon your faith. There's no grumble in that statement. There's no complaint there. When he gives us the character of Timothy and Epaphroditus later, and he speaks of them as fellow workers and servants and soldiers and sons of the faith who've been serving, even Epaphroditus, this very Philippian believer, he nearly died for the service of Christ. And do you catch a whiff of questioning or disputing in that? No, these men are for us examples. They're kind of heroes of the faith for us to look to and to say, oh, I aspire to have a character like that. You know, they look like blameless children of God. They look like shining lights. How often do I read the scriptures and think to myself, I wish more of the character of the Apostle Paul was true of me. I don't want to be that grumbling and complaining guy that I often am. I want an Epaphroditus or a Timothy to be more true of my character and more display of my calling. 
Is that where your heart is, even as we're looking at the text together today? Would you love that to be the aroma of the relationships that are right now in your home? Would you like to demonstrate that character with those in whom you're engaging with? That humble and submissive and trusting and contented spirit? Well, then don't grumble and complain. Don't grumble and complain. Oh, that's helpful. That's helpful, isn't it? Just, just quit it. Just stop it. Not that simple, is it? You see, I told you that there was a negative instruction from the Apostle Paul about how we become the people God has called us to be, but there's also a positive instruction. And listen, this positive instruction is the most important thing the Apostle Paul tells us in these verses. So if you forget everything I've said up to now, please dial in to this particular moment. The Apostle Paul, as he is instructing us, here in this passage, he says, do not grumble and complain. How am I ever going to do, do that, Paul? Verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. Now, when he says the word of life, what's he talking about there? Well, you guessed it. You don't even need me to tell you. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is it that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep me from grumbling and complaining? Well, if you're holding fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, think about what's happening then. How is it that your soul is going to be submissive as a child of God, full of trust in the wisdom and the goodness of God, and contented in spirit and in soul? And not grumble and complain regarding the circumstances of which you find yourself in. Well, only if the good news of the gospel overwhelms the bad news of your circumstances. Only if the good news of the gospel overwhelms the bad news of your circumstances. Listen, the Apostle Paul is quarantined. Epaphroditus got sick and nearly died. And neither do we see in this passage reveal a grumbling and questioning spirit of the Lord. What do we see them? Blameless children of God shining like lights. Why? Because they're holding fast to the word of life. They're holding fast to the word of life. What does it mean to hold fast to the word of life? Especially in the context of what we're given here in the passage. Well, it it's no surprise. It's coming back to the message of the gospel and realizing this. The God who is in control of my circumstances, who has brought all of these challenges and trials into my life, even the church at Philippi was receiving opposition from the local government, being challenged in a variety of ways, coming under persecution. These obstacles, these challenges and trials that the Lord my God has brought into my life, I know are for my good. And ultimately, for the advance of his kingdom. I know that because his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured worse trials than this. And accomplished the good news of the gospel in saving me from my sins and giving me his righteousness. And by overcoming in the midst of that, not grumbling and complaining, but what? Having the joy that was set before him. He had his eyes focused on the hope of the promises of God. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And even this morning, he sits down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The only way that we cannot grumble and complain 
in the midst of the circumstances of when we find ourselves is that we know there is a good news that's greater than all of the bad news. That overwhelms it in the midst of it. We begin to grow into the character, you see, of a holy, blameless, innocent child of God when we lay hold of the only holy, innocent, blameless child of God. When we lay hold of Jesus Christ, because He's the only blameless child of God. And when we lay hold of Him and we hold fast to Him, He begins to change us. He begins to shine through us. We only ever will be shining lights if we hold fast to the light of the world who has overcome the darkness and who is our very hope through all destitute and desperate circumstances. Do you see, not only does Paul tell us in this passage who it is that God wants us to be, he tells us how it is that we become the people that God wants us to be. Now, why is that important? Friends, it's important for your own joy personally. For your own joy personally. Do you know that when you choose not to grumble and complain... And you go to the word of life and you hold fast to it. And you act in obedience to God's word that you are stepping towards your future. Your future is full righteousness, all glory, holiness before the throne of God. You are stepping towards God's mission for you. But at the same time, when we experience the joy of stepping towards his righteousness and the glory that he has planned for us, we also demonstrate by example the power of who God is. The power of who God is. Do you see when he says that we're stars, the focus of the stars is not to lead people to us. That we're a bright shining light. Look at us. We're amazing. That's not the goal of it. The goal of it is to look through us and to lead us from a blameless character into a calling of lights in order to meet the person of Jesus Christ. This gives us an opportunity. This season which we're in right now, if we resist grumbling, complaining, we hold fast to the word of life, we will stand out. We're going to stand out in the world currently in the circumstances of which we're in. And you know what it's going to be an opportunity for? Telling other people why we have peace in the midst of so much unrest. Telling people why we can have faith in the midst of fear. Telling people why we can have hope in the midst of desperateness. Telling people why we can love and serve and even risk our own lives to help and care others. And not be always so worried just about number one. Because we serve a Savior who was just like that for us. Friends, as we walk into these days... Strange and difficult as they are, new opportunities for displaying the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ are upon us. Let's commit together to grow into who it is the Lord wants us to be. And let's remind each other of how it is that happens as we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice over the fact that your word is true and it is enduring It always has a word for us no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. We see that again today from this beautiful passage. We would ask you to now inscribe the reality and truth of this word upon our hearts and make it inescapably rememberable and make it also transformative so that the homes of Cornerstone families and the the apartments of Cornerstone members 
and the culture of our corporate body of Christ scattered as we are across Middle Tennessee would become, as it were, navigational beacons, astronomical GPSs. We would become lights to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members. And we would be able to say when asked, why is it that you find such hope and peace in the midst of such unrest? And we can begin to share with them the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, open up your kingdom to us and break in around us until Franklin looks a whole lot like the city of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.